Heavenly Father, your word is perfect, restores our souls. It is sure, making the simple wise. All of your words are right, rejoices our hearts. Your word is pure, enlightening our eyes. Thank you, God, that your word is clean and it endures forever. Thank you so much, God, that your word is true. In a world where so much is false and error or lies, your word is true. They are altogether righteous. Thank you, God, that we have this time to get back into your word. And pray, Lord, that we would, we would receive it with, with much, much gratitude and look upon our Savior once again, giving thanks and praise for who he is and all that he's done. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's turn in that word to Mark chapter 9. The Gospel of Mark, this wonderful word that we have been studying and going through together. As you turn there, I can say that most of us have probably experienced coming back from retreats, coming back from camps maybe in the past, or conferences, and having experienced that spiritual high, that special set-apart time of fellowship with other believers, in the Word together for a few days, this undistracted time of focus on God, praising Him from the heart, and then what happens after those few days? Now, it's time to get back to reality, right? Time to get back to real life. And perhaps this was something like what Peter and James and John were feeling after that once-in-a-lifetime grand event on Mount Hermon, where they witnessed the Lord's transfiguration, getting a glimpse of Jesus' glory, as we heard from last Sunday's text and sermon. Usually after such a, a spiritual experience, what do you want to do? You want to go tell people about it, right? You want to go share with, with everyone what you learned and what you experienced and what great fellowship it was, what happened, what it was like. But in this case... Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to tell no one. Okay, don't tell anyone what you just witnessed. And he's given the same order to we, order we've seen a few times already in the Gospel of John for various reasons. Here, similarly to those other occasions after he's performed a miracle and told the people not to say anything, he doesn't want these men, these three disciples, who don't fully grasp his mission yet, okay, especially... As we heard last week, his need to suffer and die. He doesn't want them to go telling others these things that they haven't fully grasped yet. And these these others, these other people, they even understand less than they do. And so Jesus doesn't want them to go telling others what they saw in his glorious, divine, deific state. Peter, James, and John were in no position yet. They were not ready to explain to anyone the significance of what just happened. And as we learned last week, the significance of what happened was that Jesus' true nature was being unveiled for them. They were getting a glimpse, a peek of of Jesus' glory. And it was a, a preview, a preview of what was to come in God's kingdom. And so we learned last week, too, that his purpose in doing that was to enlighten their vision, to sharpen their vision of who he is, to further 
give them an accurate knowledge and firsthand witness of, of his true glory. And as they were receiving that, that their hearts would be encouraged to continue to follow him, um, even, even through suffering. And so this was a, an experience that was a demonstration of Jesus' real power, as Jesus said. Some of you are going to see the kingdom coming with power. This was his deity, his authority, his visible glory. And this was a glimpse of what was going to happen, okay, what was to come, but not yet. So as we come down the mountain with Jesus and Peter, James, uh, and John, the Lord reminds us that suffering must come before glory. Suffering must come before glory for himself and for all who will follow him by implication. Okay, so that's what we're going to be talking about here. We're kind of continuing from last week. We're actually continuing all the way back from Mark chapter 8, verse 34, when Jesus says to the crowds and to the disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the cost of discipleship. So we're continuing all of this. All of this is one stream. It's not separate passages with separate things. All of it's connected. All right, so please stand with me. I'm going to read Mark chapter 9. And I kind of want to read the whole passage, but I'm just going to trust that you all remember what was from last week, verses 1 through 8 in the Transfiguration and all those things. And that leads into verses 9 to 13, which is our text for today. Coming down the mountain. Here we go. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. You may be seated. So our our big idea today is that Jesus reminds believers that suffering must come before glory, for himself and by implication for everyone who follows after him. And we have two main points today and, and then a concluding thought, okay? Two main thoughts, two main points, and then a concluding thought. And the first thing is a major perplexing question answered. If you, you have your insert there, the blank is answered. A major perplexing question answered. And once again, they're coming down the mountain. Okay, Jesus' transfiguration, his outer appearance changed. It was transformed. This is what they had seen. They got a glimpse of Jesus' true nature. His face was shining bright as day, bright like the sun. His clothes became exceedingly white, radiant, shimmering. Okay, light like flashing brilliance, like lightning. And... And last week I called that a preview of, of the king's glory, right? A preview of the king's glory. But I want to submit to you that maybe, maybe too, that this was a, a glimpse of, of Jesus in, in eternity past. Okay, remember Philippians chapter 2? Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and he became a man, right? So before that time, he was in full glory, receiving all the privileges and prerogatives and, and position and prestige and all the heavenly host worshiping him um, from eternity past. And so this is, this, is, um, this is perhaps a glimpse of that. But listen, Revelation 22.16, currently and in the future, Jesus speaking, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Okay, so Peter, James, and John, they had this privilege of experiencing this most extraordinary spiritual vision, which was an actual event, experience. And added to that, of course, they see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus in physical form. They hear God the Father speaking. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so all of that happens. They're coming down the mountain. Jesus says, don't speak of it. Hey, don't tell anyone what you witnessed. And Luke writes that they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Hey, so once again, Jesus is saying, you're not ready. Hey, you're, you're not ready to, to speak on these things. They're not ready even to hear it. Okay, and what, what potentially could happen? That, that early coronation, right? Them wanting to um, just take him and make him the, the king, the political messiah, and, and do what they wanted to do in their interests, right? And so it's like the guy who, who's uh, just playing the football game in the Super Bowl, right? And he's, he's in the clear. He's running like the last 30 yards uh, towards, towards the, the, the goal line for a touchdown, and uh, before he does, he starts celebrating before he gets to the goal line, right? An early celebration. He's like showing off and, you know, and before he knows it, some, the, the defender comes and rips the ball away from him, right? So it's, it's like this early celebration before the glory. And so this is what Jesus doesn't want. Um, somewhat surprisingly, uh, in this case, Peter, James, and John, they actually don't tell anyone. Hey, you read all those other times when Jesus tells the people, don't, don't tell anyone what, what just this miracle I just did. And what do they do most of the time? They go blab it out, right? They tell everyone. And so um, it's pretty noteworthy, I think, that uh, the three did not speak, and especially for Peter, because he's not known to be the quiet one, right? But interestingly, and maybe even ironically, he's the one who writes about this. The only one in all of Scripture who writes about this, and um, he does it in Second Peter 1, and that's part of our concluding thought. Okay, so anyways, Jesus says not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And that's the statement that the, that the three disciples seized upon and they were discussing with one another. Okay? They were having a hard time figuring out what Jesus meant by him rising from the dead. They knew who the Son of Man was. Jesus referred to himself enough times with that deific title uh, and they understood it. They knew that he was talking about himself. But... They were discussing, as they were following Jesus down the mountain, baffled about what he meant about rising from the dead. And he mentioned it too, right? Not too long ago, chapter 8, verse 31. He said that the Son of Man would be killed and after three days rise again. So like before, it was just because they, they couldn't accept that. They couldn't get their minds around him, the Son of Man, the Messiah King, who they recognize and confess as the Son of God, that he needed to suffer and die instead of conquer and rule. And they didn't get that he would rise from the dead. And we might imagine their discussion going something like this. Peter, what, what, do, you think, what do you think he meant by that? John, he, he did say rise from the dead, right? You think he was talking about the last day? 
the resurrection? Wait, wait, James, you're smart. Wait, why does the Lord need to die in the first place, okay, uh, if he's going to rise again? And, and when's this going to happen? Doesn't it sound to you like, like pretty soon? You remember, we're like just less than a year away from the cross. So whatever the, but they don't know that. Okay, whatever the discussion between the three was exactly, they end up asking him this, this major perplexing question. Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And this question does make sense, but only if we know what Peter and James and John and what the Jewish people at large knew. Okay, what the scribes, who are the Jewish teachers, the experts of the law, of the Old Testament scriptures, what they taught was accurate. It was true. The disciples would have been aware of that teaching. They would have been aware of the main text even of where this was coming from because it was at the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. And why don't you turn there for just a moment. Malachi chapter 4. And these are the very last verses of Old Testament scripture. Malachi 4, verse 5. And this is God speaking here. He says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Okay, so, so the three knew this. They've been taught, they learned that Elijah was supposed to come before who? Before the Messiah. Before the Messiah. And likely they were reminded of this upon seeing Elijah at the top of the mountain, right? Just before, along with Moses. And they've recognized and confessed Jesus himself is actually the Christ, the Messiah. But, but wait, what about Elijah? Aren't the scribes right? Isn't Elijah supposed to come first? Isn't that what Malachi wrote at the very end of his letter? So this is a major perplexing question because it raises once more the, the issue of who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah, the Christ? And if so, like we think, then, then where's Elijah? And also, this is confusing also. If Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Deliverer, the Chosen One, why does he have to suffer many things? Why must he be put to death? And what's the point of rising from the dead? So not to worry, Jesus does answer these questions and, and then some. But remember, the big idea for last week, coming into this week, chapter 8, coming into now, the big idea is that suffering must come before glory. It goes for Jesus himself and for everyone. Okay? His actual disciples, the 12, the 11, the 3, including all of us who are his followers, suffering comes before glory. It is, it is not your best life now. It is not God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. It is not you are awesome, so God's going to give you things that awesome people like you deserve. Rather, it's suffering comes before glory. Look what Jesus says in verse 12. Back to Mark chapter 9. He says, Elijah does come first, does first come and restore all things. 
Then he says in verse 13, But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. The parallel passage is in Matthew 17, and it's very helpful. Listen, Matthew 17, verses 12 and 13. It says, I say to you, Jesus speaking, but I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Okay, so the, the short answer to their major perplexing question is that, yes, the scribes are right about this. Elijah is to come. And actually, he already did come. He was here, but the Jewish leaders and the people did not recognize him as such. Instead, they treated him with contempt. He suffered at their hands. And with that explanation, as Matthew records, Peter, James, and John, they understood that Jesus referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Elijah to come. Right, so you need to track with me here because last time we were in this was all the way back in um, chapter 1 of Mark. And as John the Baptist was um, just uh, arriving on the scene there, that exciting, wonderful moment. But track with me, okay, just for a few moments here. Malachi chapter 3, a chapter before the one we just looked at, says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So God is going to send this forerunner, right? And so when was that fulfilled? Well, Luke chapter 1, verse 13 and 15 through 17. Okay, the angel Gabriel, you remember, coming and speaking to Zacharias, right, whose wife Elizabeth was in old age. They were both in old age, and she was barren. right? Gabriel, the angel, speaking to Zacharias, says, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petitions have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. Before who? Him? The Messiah. In the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So this is the restore all things that's talked about in Malachi 4. Okay, part of that restoration, bringing peace. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, so we got that in our thoughts. We got that in our, our minds. And then we get to Malachi chapter 4 where he, sends, where he says, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Right? So how fascinating, how wonderful it is how all of this scripture ties together, how all of it is fulfilled. The very last words of the Old Testament in Malachi prophesy of this forerunner, this messenger of God who was to come before the Messiah's arrival. And God says, I will send Elijah the prophet. So as best I understand it, let me just explain that Malachi 4. Okay, that, that, that prophecy two quick things. It seems to be a, a figurative prophecy. It doesn't necessarily mean that the actual physical Elijah, okay, the one who was taken up into heaven, was, was, uh, was going to come back down to earth. Okay? Though somehow, some way, he did show up at the transfiguration just a little bit ago. Right? But take note again once of Luke 1.17. The description of John the Baptist that he was to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, he was to come with the same boldness, the same force, 
He had the same fortitude, the same tenacity. He was to come in that spirit. He would be powerful and fearless and bold and uncompromising and unashamed, right? And so you tie that together with Matthew 17 once again. Jesus says that Elijah has come already. Okay? The disciples recognize that he was talking about John the Baptist. Clearly in some way, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, the prophecy, the promise that God is going to send Elijah the prophet. Okay, So there's seemingly a figurative prophecy. Second thing is this. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6 has both a, a partial and future fulfillment. So partial fulfillment was in the coming of John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, the messenger who the people were anticipating, making the way clear for the Lord. This happened before Jesus' first coming, right? It happened before Jesus' first coming. But the future fulfillment is yet to come. When Jesus comes back the second time, what's it going to be? It's going to be in judgment. It's going to be in judgment. He came first for salvation. The second time he comes, it's going to be in judgment before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so here's the final thing here. Um, There was two things, but this is the the concluding thing. Matthew 11, verse 14. It's kind of the key. Jesus said some months before to the crowds about John the Baptist, okay? This was a few months before the transfiguration. He says, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So if the people were believing and accepting Jesus the Messiah now at his first coming, then John the Baptist functioned as Elijah. But that wasn't the case, was it? Most of the crowds, the Jewish leaders, they were not really believing in Jesus. They were rejecting him. To them, John the Baptist did not function as Elijah. They couldn't see it. They couldn't believe it. But to those who believed in Christ, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. So as many at that time did not believe, okay, the future fulfillment of Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 is, is, is yet to come. Okay, and it appears he's going to come at Jesus' second coming. And so the last thread, okay, or the last dot in the thread here, is Revelation chapter 11, when we hear about the two witnesses okay, which are going to, who are going to come at the second half of the tribulation period. Okay, and they're going to come preaching judgment and salvation. And, um, and this is, this is uh, just understood, has been understood uh, by many, to be Elijah and Moses. Okay, whether it's their actual physical bodies uh, and physical forms or um, an Elijah-like, Moses-like prophet, uh, this, is, this is the future fulfillment of that Malachi 4 prophecy. Okay? So thank you for bearing with. This is a bit of a Bible study, but um, that's the explanation right, of, of what's going on here, what Jesus is telling the three about the coming of Elijah. John the Baptist has come in fulfillment of that prophecy. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And these guys, they get that. They understood it. Just like Matthew writes, he was talking about John the Baptist. But how does that relate to the big idea of today's message? That suffering must come before glory. Well, if you are of God's people, if you are following Jesus Christ, you're a true believer, that's the reality of life. That's the reality of life to some degree, to some level. It was true of Elijah back in the day, Old Testament times, 1 Kings 19. He's running away from, from Jezebel, 
right? And even the, the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, are killing the prophets. So he's taken off. It's true, of course, for John the Baptist, who was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah to come. The people did not take to heart his preaching. They failed to recognize him as the fulfillment of prophecy. The Jewish leaders, they had turned against him. If you read John chapter 21 and Matthew 21, as we heard a while back from our time in Mark chapter 6, that sordid story of John the Baptist being thrown in prison and the wickedness of Herodias, who was Herod's wife from this adulterous relationship, his head was cut off and served up on a platter. And so Jesus says, to Peter, James, and John. Okay, they did to him whatever they wished. Whatever they, they treated him unjustly, with malice, with contempt. Nonetheless, John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets. Where is he now? Where is he now? The one who was beheaded and his head served up on a platter. And he is in glory unimaginable. He is in honor with the saints He is receiving eternal reward and inheritance, not having been ashamed of Christ. And so now, Christ is not ashamed of him. John the Baptist was like the prophets of old who the writer of Hebrews commends in that hall of faith, right? Hebrews chapter 11. Just listen to this. Hebrews 11, towards the end of the chapter, verses 37 to 40. The writer of Hebrews says, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. They were wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't receive like immediate fulfillment. They didn't receive their best life now. They didn't receive earthly esteem and notoriety. Why? Because God had provided something better. And what was that something better? It was the promise of the Messiah. It was the promise of the Redeemer who would vindicate them. It was, for them, the cross was ahead. The Messiah, the Savior, was ahead. And he was to come. And so their faith, which was being perfected through their sufferings, and it was even being completed, their salvation being completed, which they lived for, they died for, they looked forward to. It was suffering on the way to glory. That's what it was. And so it was true for Elijah, it was true for, for John the Baptist, it was true for the Old Testament prophets and saints, and it would end up being the, the destiny of the twelve, right? Well, replacing Judas, but the twelve. And we've been over this before as well, but all of them, okay, somehow or another for, for their faithfulness to Christ in, in spreading the gospel and, and going out and, and proclaiming Christ, all martyred for their faith. And I'm not going to go through it, but each one of them in various ways put to death and um, John was the last one. He didn't, he didn't get, get executed, but he was exiled um, in, at Patmos. And this is where the criminals and the, the, just the, the dregs of society and the, the insurrectionists were sent. And um, he died there in old age. But what is the encouragement and application for us here? Okay, Jesus always keeps his word. Truly, like he said in John 10:35, the scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. What does he promise to those who lose their lives for his sake and the Gospels? What is it? They're going to keep it. They're going to save it. They're going to find it. Okay? Or, or as, as Paul puts it in, in Romans chapter 8, here's another way to, to think about that. All right? 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is keeping our life. This is saving our life. This is our eternal reward. Perfect, absolute fullness of unencumbered, unashamed love for God and love for Jesus. Worship of Him forever. The, the freedom of mind, the joy of heart that we read about in Psalm 16, I opened in Psalm 16 about, the satisfaction of soul that comes with unending, sinless expression of loving God and Jesus with your eternal being. That's, what's, that's what awaits us. And, and, of course, receiving the fullness of all that from God himself. So Jesus' answer to their question about Elijah after the transfiguration, it, it focuses them on the truth that suffering comes before that glory. A suffering for Christ's sake comes before that glory. And it leads us to our second point today. The more prominent prophecy is addressed. The more prominent prophecy is addressed. Because they're asking about Elijah, they're asking about Malachi 4, they're asking about what's going on there. But Jesus points them to, as he answers that question, he addresses the more prominent prophecy. And what is that in verse 12b? He says, and yet... How is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Right? He's pointing Peter, James, and John okay, to, the, to the greater prophecy, to the more significant one. It's about himself. Just as John the Baptist suffered, so will Jesus. And he doesn't specifically cite any scriptures here, but he clearly alludes to them. He says, how is it written and yet, how is it written that he, the Son of Man, will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Surely he has in mind many Old Testament scriptures that predict that the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, will suffer. For example, I could give you a bunch, but I'll just give you a couple here. Psalm 22, Psalm 22 verse 1 is one of those messianic psalms. Psalm 22, verse 1, starts off saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Verses 6 through 8, that same psalm, he says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. All of this was specifically exactly fulfilled. Verses 17 and 18 says, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. I'm not going to read it, but Psalm 69, verse 8, 9, and 11. Psalm 118, verse 22. And... Um, and you knew I was going to go to Isaiah 53, I'm sure. And uh, we've been over that this morning a few times. But let me just point out to you why I wanted to include that in our scripture reading and um, for that, our time right now. Isaiah 53, 
Okay, remember, suffering before glory, right? So look at verse 7, or you can just listen. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And then, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, what's going to happen? He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Suffering before that glory. Look at verse 11. As a result, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Lastly, verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. And so my point was that suffering comes before glory. It's even spelled out there in the famous Isaiah 53. And um, just actually, Isaiah 52 says, Behold... This is where the passage actually starts. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Right? So rewinding a little bit there. So these, these are some scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, prophecies of what Jesus was pointing to, that the Son of Man must suffer. Right? That they would understand his true mission involved this utter rejection, this ultimate sacrifice, incomparable suffering, unprecedented death. And what was it for? It was to glorify the Father, and it was for his own glory to be manifest. And listen, listen, folks, it was also for us to share in that eternal weight of glory. Goodness. John chapter 17. John 17, that high priestly prayer of the Lord. Look, John 17, verse 22. Jesus prays, The glory which you, Father, have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Where is Jesus? He's exalted in glory, right? So that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay. How can we know this, this great love of God, okay, the true glory of Christ, this prayer of, of Jesus? Okay, it, took, it took the incarnation. Okay, it took Jesus' condescension. It took him suffering on our behalf. And, and then comes glory. Glory for him. Glory with him. For us as well. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Miracles, as he's describing Jesus and his incarnation. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, and down further still to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. And he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. 
One has the picture of a, a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. Some of us men experienced that yesterday, right? He had to bend down to, to lift up. But he must also disappear even under the load before the incredible, he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. One may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover, end quote. And Jesus has come down. He's come all the way down in deeper passion and love than we can imagine. Hey, for us, for us wretched sinners, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that cross comes before the crown. And he takes us up with him in glory to be with him. And so, application? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us this. Look, Hebrews 12, verse 4, after that hall of faith in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says to these persecuted believers, hey, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You, you, you have not yet arrived. You're, you're, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. But the verse before, he says this, Consider him, Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this is um, just uh, encouraging words for us to, to keep running the race, okay, to endure, to fix our eyes, Hey, don't take a casual glance, a cursory look at Jesus. Fix your gaze intently upon him. Study him. Meditate upon him. And that brings us back to Mark 8, right? We have not yet resisted in our striving against sin to, to the shedding of blood. But Mark 8, Jesus calls all of his followers, anyone who would seek to follow him, to deny themselves. Take up their cross every day, Luke writes, and follow him. Most of us are aware of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And he spent 12 years of his life in a prison cell because he wouldn't stop proclaiming the word. He wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. He went in around age 32, came out age 44, wife, children. And he looked back over those hardships that he spent in that prison cell. And he wrote about how God enabled him to survive, even flourish during that time. And he quoted 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, which says, We had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So he says, By that scripture, I was made to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing in this life, even to reckon myself my wife, my children, 
my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me, and myself as dead to them. End quote. It reminds me of the, the verse that our family is memorizing um, for, for this week. Galatians 2.20, right? For I have been crucified with Christ. All as dead to me and myself as dead to them. And so a lot of times when we talk about these, these you know, faithful, wonderful servants and men, ministers of God, um, what do their wives think about this, right? I mean, what were they going through? That conviction that her husband had as, as she appealed to the authorities. And she actually, her name was Elizabeth, she appealed to the authorities uh, for her husband being in jail. And um, listen to this. Ten years after the, uh, um, John Bunyan was married, he was 30 years old, okay? His first wife actually died. This was 1658. And he had four children with her. Under 10 years old, one of them was blind. So a year later is when he married Elizabeth. And um, the year after they marriage, after their marriage, okay, that's when he was arrested and put in prison. And she was actually pregnant with their firstborn, and she miscarried in the crisis. And so uh, check out the valor of this young wife, um, Elizabeth Bunyan, in the way that she went to the authorities to appeal on behalf of her husband. Okay, And, and the authorities there... They, they asked her this question. Will he stop preaching? She answered, My Lord, he dares not leave off preaching as long as he can speak. So they asked her, Then what is the need of us talking here? Well, there is need for this, my Lord, for I have four small children that cannot help themselves, of which one is blind, and we have nothing to live upon but the charity of good people. One of the authorities named Matthew Hale with pity, he asks if she really has four children that young. She says, My Lord, I am but actually a mother-in-law to them, having not been married to him yet full two years. Indeed, I was with child when my husband was first apprehended. But being young and unaccustomed to such things, I being dismayed at the news that he was arrested, I fell into labor and so continued for eight days. And then my baby was delivered, but soon died. Hale was moved, but the other judges were hardened and spoke against Bunyan. He is a mere tinker. A tinker is someone who fixes like metal utensils and travels around. That's the way they make their living. He's a mere tinker. And she says, yes, and because he is a tinker and a poor man, therefore he is despised and cannot have justice. There was a, a Mr. Chester authority there. He's enraged. He gets mad and says that Bunyan's just going to preach and do as he wishes. She says, he preacheth nothing but the word of God. Another authority, Mr. Twisden, in a rage, he runneth up and down and doeth harm. She says, no, my Lord, it is not so. God hath owned him and done much good by him. Another angry man, his doctrine is the doctrine of the devil. She says, my Lord, when the righteous judge shall appear, it will be known that his doctrine is not the doctrine of the devil. So Bunyan's biographer comments that Elizabeth Bunyan was simply an English peasant woman, but could she have spoken with more dignity had she been a crowned queen? What's our encouragement from this? Okay. Jesus' word never, ever, ever, ever fails. He always, always keeps his promise. So if he says you lose your life for my sake and for the gospel, you'll save it. 
Okay, we must take that to heart. And we need to understand that Jesus' promise of salvation, the treasures of heaven, our eternal rewards and glories that await, okay, of which the transfiguration was, was just a peak of that Peter, James, and John got, and we get as we study and read the scriptures. Okay, these are not just a, a little bit better than what's offered here on earth. Okay? Just uh, all the acceptance by society and esteem of friends, the praise of men, women, friends, family, etc. Hey, Jesus' promise are, are not better by just a little bit. They're far better. They're way better. They're far greater. He himself is much, much better. Okay? He doesn't beat them just, just by a little bit. He beats them like beyond comparison. Jesus was perfect and sinless and truthful and loving in everything that he did, everything that he said. So when he tells you, dear Christian brothers and sisters, that the road is going to be hard, it, it will be marked with suffering and pain for my sake, okay, you will have some agony. You will feel maybe like an outcast. Maybe some of your friends will reject you. Maybe you're going to be left out of some things. Maybe you'll be distressed because it's so socially awkward. Maybe it's, it'll be soul-wrenching relationships that you endure with unbelievers whom you love. You remember to keep your eyes fixed on eternity, on what Christ promises you, and believe that they're far, far greater. It is momentary light affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. And Paul says you've got to keep looking at that. You've got to keep staring at that. Keep your mind Set your mind on those things which are above. How beautiful it is that that's the inheritance that Jesus secured for you by his self-sacrifice, his atoning blood, his love, his life, paying your debt of guilt, taking it all upon his own shoulders as C.S. Lewis so beautifully illustrated. Right? He comes back up and, and lifts us up with him. So Jesus answers that perplexing question. He also addresses the more prominent prophecy. Our concluding thought here, okay? Maybe you can turn with me to 2 Peter. I told you we'd get there. 2 Peter, chapter 1. I read a portion of this uh, last week, but this is the only other mention of the transfiguration in all of Scripture. This is our brief concluding thought. Second, but it's very important. 2 Peter, chapter 1. Starting in verse 16, Peter writes, 2 Peter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What is he talking about? Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him, by the majestic glory. What utterance? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And he's referring specifically to the transfiguration. It's the only other place in Scripture mentioned. Good old Peter here. Verse 19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, 
that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So as powerful and real and spiritual as Peter, James, and John's experience was on that mountain, and again, just as the time Peter's writing, this was like 35 years before, Okay, uh, there's something more sure. There's something more sure, a more certain prophetic word. Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, is telling us, and telling the, the, the audience back then, and telling us that this is the word of God. Okay? Whether good or bad, our experiences are not everything. Our interpretations, our memories, our takeaways are not truly reliable. Our recollection of things that, that have happened even even a couple days later, right? Something happens and there's an accident and different people who see that accident will remember different things, right? We leave things out, we add on to them, but God's word never changes. Okay? Again, God always keeps his promises. His prophecies are always fulfilled. They're guaranteed. His word is truth. God never lies. His character never changes. What great assurance we have as Christians just like we sang earlier, how sweet it is to trust in Jesus, right? Just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. So many people are being duped these days by preachers and pastors who say, God told me such and such, and so now I'm sharing it with you, right? I heard God's voice, and he said, I need to do such and such, So we as the church, we need to do that. These charismatic personalities and theologies and just just people who tend to live more more by their their emotional well-being, their emotions, their feelings, rather than truth. People who keep seeking and chasing after that next spiritual high, that next spiritual experience, which is so subjective. Listen, 2 Peter 1, there's nothing more spiritual than the Holy Spirit. Amen? Okay, Holy Spirit, he is the one who moved certain men along to speak and write for God the word that he inspired, which is the Holy Bible. So it brings us back to where we started. Jesus comes, he says he's not going to rule yet, but rather he's going to first suffer, be rejected, even die. And he tells the disciples less than a year from now, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. John 16. Okay? So, Faith Bible Church, let's continue to be faithful to abide in the word of Christ. May it richly dwell within us. May we be saturated by the words of grace and truth, who Jesus Christ is as the living word, and who the Holy Spirit gives us in the Bible. God reveals his love, his grace, his mercy, his holiness, his hatred of sin. He reveals Christ's suffering, Christ's death in our place, Christ's glorious return, all in this precious book that we hold in our hands today. So let's continue to read it, study it, meditate on it, obey it, and be transformed by it. How wonderful is God's perfect word and its perfecting work in us to conform us to the image of Christ. So this leads us to our, our communion time. Right? In his word is where he gives us this ordinance, this precious 
precious time to, to fellowship, to come in communion with Christ in this special, sacred, personal way, and to, to experience this together as the church body. It's a, um, it's a way for us to receive God's grace together. And so suffering comes before glory, the cross before the crown, and we are remembering that suffering, the breaking of his body. We're remembering the cross, his blood shed on that tree. And we're celebrating uh, the, the wonders of the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. So let's, let's pray. And um, I'm going to invite Joe Vega Sr. to come and help with the, uh, the ushering and, and Philip to um, help with that. And uh, we are going to continue to, to take it um, just pew by pew for this time. And um, Mr. Vega will, will um, guide us through that. But let's pray as we approach our Lord's table. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for uh, the perfection and clarity of your word. Thank you that uh, we can be sanctified by it. I pray that uh, just this wonderful text that, that, that follows the, the Mount of Transfiguration as the, the three are coming down with Jesus down that mountain, God, and all that we've learned through it. And the main point, God, that, that suffering for Jesus, suffering for all who are faithful to follow him, it will come to some degree, and we want to be prepared and ready and have that, that knowledge and um, assurance of, of the promise and reward yet to come. But uh, we look forward to that day, God, and um, in the meantime, we want to take joy in all that you've provided for us, including this time of communion. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts have been duly prepared, and uh, we take this in a manner worthy of our precious Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.